Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's memorial quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to LoriMasonDesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to LoriMasonDesign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. At 70 years old and battling pancreatic cancer, Ben Orion's mom, Suzanne Schumann, was ready to go. She had been given a three- to six-month life expectancy and let her family know that she was choosing death with dignity. Her family and friends organized a celebration where she made an announcement about her plan. Over the next few weeks, Ben and his siblings took turns caring for their mother. On Ben's last visit, they shared a beautiful day where the palpable tension within the house seemed to clear. They spent a carefree time enjoying each other's company. He prepared a hearty breakfast and dinner, and she devoured both. The stress over her condition was fading, and a lightness was taking its place. That evening, as she prepared herself for bed, she told Ben that tomorrow would be the day. Ben reassured her that she didn't have to, that she could wait, but that he was there for her. And for the first time in his adult life, he went to sleep beside his mom. At 3.30 in the morning, she woke up and told Ben, I want to do it now. As promised, Ben did as his mother requested, assisting her as she chose to end her suffering. He leaned forward at the side of the bed, and they held each other. Releasing her embrace, she said, You just have to let go. Those would be her last words. He and a few of her friends watched and waited. After an hour, Ben became tired, lifted the covers, snuggled in close to his mom, and fell asleep. By the time he woke up, she had died. Oregon was the first state to legalize death with dignity, and 23 years later is one of only eight states to allow terminally ill individuals to take their own lives. Showing up and being present for someone who has made this decision is hard enough, even without taking into account local laws and the moral judgment of others. I would think that not having to worry about the legal ramifications would change the dynamic. 
Families could attend to their loved ones when they choose to die, instead of being concerned with personal responsibility. The focus should be on the dying person. My mom likely would have followed through and ended her own life anyhow. But of course, being able to do it uh, legally under the auspices of the state kept us safe and allowed for more comfort in regards to the preparation and the expectations and understanding like that she, you know, how it would occur. There would have been a greater uncertainty in that regard if we had been in a different state. But my mom, she had told us as teens, my older sister and my younger brother and I, that if she, if she ever got so sick that she couldn't essentially go to the bathroom by herself, that she would take her own life. And she, she usually said something like that in her way of a little bit of flourishing bravado and incredible stubbornness and brashness. That was the way she expressed herself. So my siblings and I, we knew that my mom never, she never really said things she didn't mean. She more said things she meant to a fault. And so we, we never really doubted that. I think that her mother in Berlin killed herself when she became infirm. While I didn't focus on that in regards to how my mother proceeded to get sick and use Oregon's death with dignity legislation, it certainly makes even further sense in regards to the certainty she had that she would someday do that if, if she became infirm to that extent herself. So your, your grandmother also took her own life. I think she had Parkinson's. I, I don't know if that was pre or post World War II, probably after. I think when she realized it was getting worse, I think she, yeah, I think she threw herself off a, a roof. Oh my gosh. When did you learn that? I knew that as a young adult and then forgot it and then learned it again and then forgot it. And then, <laughs> but I know it now and, and it's an interesting part of her growth. Yeah. Right, right. When you were there with your mom when she died, did you think there would be other opportunities to visit her again? Did you really, did you think that would be the last visit? We never knew just how, you know, the acute phase of her uh, pancreatic cancer would exhibit itself. We had never been through that. So we were sort of just on a care schedule, you mm -hmm. know, where as, as uh, my brother and, and sister, they were both living in Portland. So they had their shifts and the two of us probably had the, the closest relationship out of between her and the siblings, my siblings. So I was looking forward to helping and be a part of it. And there was already a sense, the sense of impending, the possibility of impending grace that I was picking up on. There was such an amazing experience of grace that I witnessed in regards to her follow through. It didn't really have these tags along with it of, you know, too many harmful or, or really painful associations other than precisely what she was doing. Had we been in a different state where we couldn't do that with so much structure, the possibility of her reaching that, you know, and me having been able to witness that grace would have been endangered. It might not have come to pass. Death with Dignity provides this kind of scaffolding or, or a guide for how to do this in a way that that is helpful to the person who is ending their life and the people around them? Yeah, it does. Throughout my life, every now and then, I've heard a story about someone who was lucky enough to have 
been able to have been with family around their dying individual and been able to express that later on that that had been a very beautiful, well-arranged event that allowed everyone to grow and grieve and feel without as much, you know, without as much fear that, that this is a part of everyone's life and will be a part of everyone's life. That I think there's far more stories probably where people aren't allowed to experience that in a healthy way. Death with dignity legislation probably allows for a framework to enable that more often. I'm also wondering about your siblings and the experience that you alone shared with your mom. I mean, your mom had some friends present as well. Yes. You know, people had been caring for her off and on, you know, it took quite a bit of energy and attention, especially in the last week where she was taking more and more morphine. My brother was on for a little bit then had to work and be with his family. My sister was on for a bit. She had been on for 48 hours and I got the call. So when I called and we, I essentially tagged her out, you know, I certainly didn't know that I was going to get woken up that night with her saying, this is the time. No one is in the place to say no to someone at that moment. So I simply facilitated what she wanted, which was call my sister, call my brother, call two friends, call the death with dignity advocate that they had assigned for us, and then proceed to mix up the barbiturates like at three in the morning. So my sister was sleeping. You know, my sister and brother didn't pick up. The death with dignity advocate didn't pick up. And then uh, the two friends did, and they, they came over. Was there a sense of reassurance when they came over? How did you feel about being alone through that? It was so incredibly amazing to have my mother show me a peaceful determination to both do this for herself and for me, that it just didn't matter. I mean, I. I'm so grateful that I was able to be there and for the, for her friends to have walked in. I, I find it was probably very, very valuable for them too. That's about as much as I think about it for them. I mean, I was so focused on my mother and I was simply just a foot away from her. And I think I, I may have backed up at one moment and let them lean over her, you know, for a moment. But I think she was already asleep by the time they walked in the door because from when she told me to when I mixed up the barbiturates to when she drank it, I think it was only seven or eight minutes, 10 minutes. And then when you drink the, those barbiturates, she literally put her, you know, from a lying position, me with my knees on the carpet next to her, she just reached up and, and wrapped her arms around me. And that only lasted a couple seconds and said, she said, and now all you have to do is let go. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. When your mom found out that she was terminally ill, you guys had a celebration of life. You and your siblings threw a celebration of life for her. She may have hinted at it. I think it occurred to all of us that that was the right thing to do, knowing her. Uh, she was well known and well admired and loved for all her complexity. And my sister and I probably organized it the most with her blessing. We tried to just let her know that we, you know, to give us the list of people and we'd take it from there. And 
And how many people showed up? I think it was probably about 70 people, 60. She had an upstairs living room in her in her condo. She had several couches and coffee tables and places. And it was really standing room only. And she sat back on one of the couches. Every seat was taken, every ottoman, every every standing spot, straight down to people looking over the railing of the stairs going, you know, going down to her next level. And we had made t-shirts uh, in rainbow, you know, colors of the rainbow, every different colored t-shirt with all like a nickname for her was printed on them. And those were handed out the door. So everyone, you know, it was like very, very colorful, which is the way she was. So she talked to people and people read things and people tell, told her what, you know, their memories of her and how much they loved her. And it, it, it lasted about two hours from start to finish. And she had said that she would kill herself, I think that night <laughs> after the party. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Or, or the next day or something. Were you guys feeling like, let's keep this party going? You know, actually, I think I did buy into it because it had been, a, you know, it had been a couple months, two or three months. So she said it and I'm like, wow, is this what someone does? Is this like this? And so when the next day came and it was very clear that she had changed her mind, it was actually difficult because of just, just, just the tug on the emotions of her announcing something like that and having to have to shift. But it didn't take away from the, how beautiful the night was. You and your siblings were kind of emotionally prepared for that to be it. And so when it wasn't, I imagine it was a whole mix of emotions, probably great to have more time with your mom, but like that this pain that she was dealing with and and the unknown of when it would end. The unknown of when it would end. And, you know, her pain was our pain. Our pain was our pain as well, but it was a painful experience. It wasn't until those last moments for me where it became incredibly beautiful and beneficial you know despite the tragedy of having gotten cancer and for her for her life to have ended but the process of it nevertheless was beneficial so yes it was painful though at that time because of what had come before it at the celebration of life your mom was very ill i imagine it was pretty taxing on her to receive 70 some people and have meaningful engagement with so many people in such a short period of time. How was that for her? She was always the center of attention in most rooms. She had been taking, you know, morphine somewhat off and on for the previous two weeks or, or painkillers. So she knew the party was planned. She knew people were coming over at what time. And so she put on her nice clothing, which was very colorful and ethnic. And sat herself down on the couch after, you know, an hour after taking some pain medication. And she just soaked up the love. I mean, she, she this was a, a love sink. And, and so it was okay for her. It was, she, was in her um, she was in her happy place. You know, it's so beautiful. I love that you guys did that because I, I often reflect on the fact that sometimes it takes a funeral to get us all to come together. And mm-hmm. I often say, why didn't we come together when this person was still living, you know? That event was a celebration of life. And I just, I so wish we all were celebrating life more. I often also say, I want to talk about how this person lived, not how they died. Yeah, whether it's the pain of, uh, of a death or just the, the struggle of the fact that life is difficult sometimes for us on very less significant ways, but we feel them significant, you know, in the moment every day, it's important. It's so important for us to remember that the reason we're living is the moments that we get Yeah. and try to keep things in perspective and 
love our loved ones every moment of every day that we can. It's interesting, too, in this moment that we find ourselves in right now, where so many of us are quarantined, what you got to experience with your mom, a lot of people can't do right now. Oh, yeah. That's a horrible part of what seems to be a portion of the COVID experiences this is this concept of tunnels of people, you know, waiting for the attention of doctors where family aren't allowed. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an image and it's horrible. Has that crossed your mind more recently? Like what if that had been the situation with your mom? I mean, has that created a, a clear delineation of now in this moment and wow, what I got to experience I have not compared it up till now with with what could have been because of because of this pandemic but every single time I have ever thought of what my mom did and shared with us and I was the lucky one to be you know at her bedside I have never thought about it without having been grateful and, and impressed with with how incredibly gracious and true and it was and how how lucky I was so I know that that it that I was lucky and fortunate to the ultimate in regards to experiencing the death of a parent. It is something that that very few people get and but more people could, you know, could get that. I'm a big fan of that book Being Mortal and Atul Gawande. He speaks about how we have kind of medicalized if that's a term death. Doctors are there to save lives, not to not to be there. Mm-hmm to attend right. to death. Um, that's, that goes against what all that they've studied and learned. People choose to separate themselves from death. Yeah. It's a, it's a really multifaceted concept in my head. There's the general societal fear of death. You don't see it because it's people push it away. There's the impulse to push it away towards the hospital, which doesn't really need to be. I could see there might be a lot of reasons where people say this needs to be, but in this instance, death was really inevitable, as at some point it will be for everybody. And there are a lot of people who choose home and hospice, but probably not nearly as many who just don't make that choice. And I was scared of it too, but somehow I lucked into being there. Thank you for listening in to this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. We appreciate you following the work we do and would love it if you'd share us with your friends and family. Your recommendation helps us reach more ears and build upon the work we're doing. They called her Susie, but she had a nickname, Sushu, for, you know, acronym for Suzanne Schumann. And I think she sold jewelry under that name. Jewelry yeah. she made or jewelry or did she? Yeah, she was an expert necklace maker and she had studied old glass and tribal and ceramic beads from uh, around the world for many years. In addition to being a, you know, a very advanced psychotherapist, she had this necklace making area that was always wild and, and established and with all the tools for making uh, necklaces, which she sold in nice stores. Do you have any necklaces that she made? I've got something tucked away. I think she made for me with some dichromatic glass or something. But she would, you know, put her her big beaded, you know, necklaces in in art shows and down here in Eugene, Oregon. She would get accepted into the the mayor's art show and 
get some awards. And, and she, she loved it. She traveled the world a little collecting stuff. What do you see as some of the influences that she's left with you? You know, from a young age, one example is she, there was one stop sign she didn't believe in on the way home. And it, I mean, that shaped me. She's like, this is not my stop sign. This is <laughs> the cult, our society stop sign. There is no reason to stop here. And she would blow past it because she had judged it was safe. <laughs> and, and it was, but it, it really, <laughs> that, that formed me. I mean, it really was a strong image in my head that we all have to obey the majority of our societal agreements. But I have been known to push the borders a little bit more. And I think that, you know, in a, in a safe way or in a way I feel is okay, I will roll through a stop. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, you know, she made you feel comfortable with questioning authority. Yeah, she made me comfortable questioning authority, questioning rules, taking things into my own hands and hopefully being smart about it. But she poo-pooed a lot of societal norms and everyone knew her as that person who was audacious. In that piece that you wrote for Utney Reader, it's such a beautiful piece. And there's this part where you talk about you're tempted to do this irreverent act after she died. Drive her, I think, to the crematorium in her own convertible with the top down. I actually considered that. So, I mean... I crawled in bed next to her and I, I wasn't really touching her, but you know, I was right up to her and maybe I had my hand on her shoulder. In fact, I did. But when I woke up and there she was dead, I mean, that's, yeah, that's crazy memory, but I did, I got up, I, I knew how amazing it was right away. I started writing that piece sitting next to her just for a bit, but I did. And I mean, there wasn't really a hurry. I knew my sister needed to be given an opportunity to come and, and see her and my brother before the porch, you know, we had a service come pick her up. And, but I thought she had a convertible. It was upstairs. She would have gotten a kick out of that. I thought about putting her in the convertible with glasses on a la weekend at Bernie's and, you know, and take some photos of her around down in the convertible. But of course, you know, it was, it flashed through me and I thought, okay, and I, I like, I can push the limits here. This is going to be a forever memory. And I put, the glasses on her. And I was like, if you've ever started to do something like that with a, a dead body, which I know is a morbid thought, but it is, you realize it, it's not quite the same as imagining it. And it wasn't. I said, nah, it's not, I'm not going to mess around to you. She was stiff and I'm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I did think about it. What most surprised you about the experience of being there with your mom when she died? It did surprise me that the way they had it set up with these barbiturates that one does fall unconscious very, very quickly. It surprised me. Like I knew immediately that what she said to me, now all you have to do is let go. I was like, I knew right away that she had given me a great gift. I certainly was very surprised at that moment where I had been sleeping and suddenly I was roused awake by her shoving me in the most amazingly kind of warm, pleasant evening looking out at the stars through these windows she said she wanted to do it now so that concept of moving from this existence to whatever else is next and being able to say i'm i'm taking that step do you want to do you know want to see me there that was and you know until that's happened it'll be surprising to anybody <laughs> i i can't even say i can only imagine because it's it's incredible in that piece that you wrote, you described just this beautiful, wonderful day 
that you got to spend yeah. with her. The two nights before had been tough. I think she had been taking a lot of morphine and I showed up and on a hunch, you know, I moved the morphine away from her. So she'd have to reach over for it farther. And the next morning she was awake and she was cognizant and, and uh, she started shuffling through all the papers that she thought she had to deal with in regards to her estate and arrangements. So that, that day I, she was fully back. I mean, she was weak and skinny as all could be. And, but she was really there and she was um, lucid. And so I made her some delicious food, which she ate. And throughout the day in the morning, she ate and in the evening she did. Leading up to that had been difficult up to that moment, especially when I arrived and she didn't know day from night on the morphine she was on. So for it to have suddenly released and to have her been there with this, this something in the background that part of me must have known she was close. That was sort of what I talked about in that piece, this pervasive like lightness in the air where everything was swiftly changing to reach this moment where she decided to die. You believe that the morphine kind of kept her from having that lucid, very present moment. And that's by not being able to access that, that's what gave her that day or the ability to have that day. It's true. I've never really thought of that, but it's, it is very, very true. And I appreciate you saying that. You knew that intuitively yeah. somehow. I did. Uh, I picked up on it and by moving it away, she, she really stopped taking it. She took a little bit at one point, And by the time she had decided, yeah, it, she regained her lucidity and as deep as she was, she wouldn't have been able to come to that moment. When she did wake you up in the middle of the night, did you have any hesitation at all? Or were you? She woke me up and she just said the words, I want to do it now. And I think the first two words in my head to myself were, holy shit. And, and I said, are you sure? I just said that to her, are you sure? And she goes, she just said, yes. And I could hear it in her voice. And so I got up. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was the one night I, I'd slept next to her. I'd gone to sleep, sleeping next to her, gone to bed. And, and so I got up and uh, I went over to her side and I you know, looked in her eyes and kind of make sure that what I thought I had heard was real. And we got very quickly to who she wanted to call and to where the barbiturates were that were, had been prepared by the doctor. And it went pretty quickly from there to me making the phone calls to reading the instructions on the sheet. Do you think that having that really amazing day with her just prior, just the, her last full yeah. day, do you think enjoying that amazing day with her, do you think that made it easier or more difficult? It made it better. It made it better. Yeah, I was very fortunate to have had that last day with her. When you think about the gifts of this experience, I imagine there are both the gifts of having that day with her, but also the gift of attending to her when she did die. What can you speak to in particular about the gifts associated with going through that experience with her? There were a lot of different types of gifts. One was being able to witness such deep conviction, peaceful conviction, which I think is another in the way of saying grace, maybe. And to witness such such grace, such rare grace that we usually, you know, from day by day, how horrible death is and how 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 it should be feared. What can we do to avoid it? And 
certainly that all of that stuff has its associated merits, but integrity, you know, having a deep integrity and that, that she was my mother, that that's in me. She showed me that it was in me. She made it more a part of me because she chose to, and because I lucked out, you know, being there at that time. I know that I have, you know, a moment in my future that I, I can hope to be as potentially graceful in and as, as helpful to the ones around me in regards to how they can perceive death in their, their turn. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you. Sharing a meal with others is my favorite place to engage in deep, meaningful, and fun conversations. On the Four Top Podcast, three thought leaders join host Catherine Cole for a fast-moving roundtable discussion of the hot-button topics in food and beverage. The show covers a wide array of topics from farming to fine dining. The Four Top is a James Beard and IACP award-winning national food and beverage podcast presented by OPB for NPR One. Start listening now at thefortop.org, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.